Hello and welcome. You've tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Jesus Christ wants to be the captivator of your heart. Jesus is looking for people who will say, I love you. I'll serve you. I'll live for you. Some of the Hebrew people were about to be taken captive, the usual practice, and it of course meant that they were to be slaves. It's an ugly word, slave. We subscribe to freedom, don't we, and enjoy a life that's characterised by being free. Or do we? Consider that we are all, in fact, slave to someone or something. The question is, what or whom? Tonight, Dr. Corbett addresses this question, his topic, the captivator. Again, I want to help you to read your Bible better, particularly the Old Testament. So part of, a large part of the motive of dealing with Jeremiah is so that you can pick up your Bible, go to the Old Testament, and rather than go, what the heck was all that about? You can go, actually, I've got a bit of an idea now what this is about. And hopefully, as we've gone through some of the history of Israel, you can begin to see that that, okay, so we've got Abraham becomes a nation, that nation goes down to Egypt, that nation grows in Egypt, the 12 tribes kind of multiply and they grow, and then they come out of Egypt, that's called the Exodus, they come out of Egypt, and eventually they go along and they say, give us a king, so they, they get in their land, they get a king, uh, Saul didn't last long, then David, then Solomon, and now it's, a re- now it's the glory days of Israel. Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam, who is dopey, and he divides the nation because he's so stupid. And so you've got North and South who are in civil war for hundreds of years, civil war. And then eventually these guys to the north, known as Ephraim or Israel, become so rebellious that God just says, I'm finished with you. And they get cut off. And they go into, they're taken away by the Assyrians and scattered among the nations. And then about 100 years later, here we are with Jeremiah saying, hey, look, something very similar to this is going to happen to you guys in the south. Now, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. When God chose Israel, Israel's attitude was, oh, yeah, he chose us because why wouldn't you? That was kind of the attitude they had. Now, God warned them. Don't have that attitude. And God was saying all along, no, I've chosen you to model to the world what it looks like to be in a relationship with me. I've chosen you to be, here's the key word, light to the nations. You are to be a light to the nations. And yet, they weren't. So Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. We read in Isaiah 49 verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is Old Covenant. God wanted to reach the nations of the earth and he wanted to use Israel to do it. So yes, Israel was a covenant people. Yes, they were the chosen people, but not to be the exclusive nation of chosen people. They were chosen to take God's covenant love to the nations. And they didn't do it. And the observant among you will recognise that Isaiah, throughout his book, 
begins to say that this call to be the light to the nations will be taken off the whole nation of Israel and put onto the Messiah. And the Messiah would be the light to the nations. And so in John chapter 8, when Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. He's picking up on this thing. Isaiah 51 verse 4, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. That was God's intention. We've been reading the first 24 chapters of Jeremiah where the people were were telling Jeremiah, don't tell us what to do. We're sick of God telling us what to do. We will look religious, but we will not allow God to tell us what to do. What a heartless way to relate to God. And Israel was never meant to relate to God that way. When they came back from the exile, there were two key leaders that God used when they came back. One was Nehemiah. And then as Nehemiah began some of the practical outworking in Jerusalem, he called for some help from another leader. His name was Ezra. And Ezra came back and Ezra wanted to encourage the people. He rewrote the history of Israel. He left out the entire history of the northern tribes because that was too discouraging. And he wrote, so Jeremiah actually ended up writing First and Second Kings, the history of North and South Israel to show them to show the people for generations to come, this is why God has fulfilled his covenant. And the covenant said this, if you disobey me, you will be exiled from the land. So Jeremiah wrote First and Second Kings, put it together. And then Ezra came back and he wrote, rewrote the history and that's called First and Second Chronicles. And so First and Second Chronicles traces the lineage, the history of Judah. So if you ever get bogged down in the first four chapters of First Chronicles, blah, blah, begat, blah, blah, begat, blah, blah. Well, that's why, because he's actually very intentionally wanting the people to know you have a history. You have a heritage. And so you read through the Chronicles and you begin to see Ezra leaves out the big sins, leaves out the sins that David committed and talks about encouraging things. So we have Chronicles. The psalmist said, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, rejoice in God. And so tonight, when you lay your head to rest and you read the word, let God know it's a delight to do so. Take delight in doing that. Let God know it's a delight to read your word. So um, let's have a look. Jeremiah 25 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. That is... The first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. There's an interesting historical marker there. Which Jeremiah, verse 2, the prophets spoke to all the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Note this, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon. That's the 13th year of Josiah's reign. Josiah, I believe, took over as king when he was either 8 or 18, depending on which text we take, king of Judah to this day. The word of the Lord came to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Now, Jeremiah's going to make a point about that in a moment, and that is this, that he was just one in a, a long list of prophets that God had sent. And he refers to, I think, the age of 13, and I think he's saying that 
I, I, I'm going to take a stab and say uh, that's probably how old he was when the law was discovered in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. And the law, the, the Bible was discovered. Can you believe that? that? That for several hundred years, Israel had lost the Bible. And then it was during the reign of Josiah, they actually found it in the temple. And so um, quite possibly about that time is when God actually called Jeremiah to be a prophet. So about 12, 13 years of age, very young. And we, we know that there were other prophets. There was um, uh, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. These guys, so if you're reading through your Bible and go, Zephaniah, where the heck does he fit in? Well, he fits in just before Jeremiah. So these are the prophets. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, how would you like to come to church and on a Sunday, there are prophets here who are declaring the most amazing, predictive, prophetic statements, and it is hair-curling stuff. Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, here's a thought about that. God does that from time to time. In fact, John Calvin, who's not known for being overly charismatic, said that from time to time, God raises up prophets and apostles still. That's an interesting statement. And when does he do that? He generally does that when God's people aren't listening to him. He generally does that when God's people are in rebellion. So if next Sunday, all of a sudden, there's, there's deep, profound, prophetic words coming around the church, I'm going to be going, okay, God, why do you feel the need to do that? Now, please don't misunderstand me. If you think I've just said we don't work on the prophetic here, then that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, and Because there is a New Testament application of the prophetic that we desperately need because Silas, Agabus, Titus, these prophets of the New Testament, whenever they spoke, it says, and they encouraged the church. So New Testament prophecy is largely encouragement. Do we need more encouragement today? Oh, please, Jesus. <laughs> Could do with some. Just an eyedropper full of it would do. Be great. But let's be aware that the that where there's incredible prophetic activity, it's usually because people aren't listening to God. And God will raise up prophets. And Jeremiah's about to make this point. So we read from verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. So God had spoken over and over and over to Judah, but they weren't listening. Now, I've heard people say, whenever God speaks, you can't help but hear. Well, I read things like this and I go, well, apparently some people didn't hear that sermon because they were hearing but not hearing. They were... God had been speaking, but they weren't hearing. So is it possible to miss hearing the voice of God? Absolutely it is. It's, it, it seems that way. So as I read this, I, and this, is, this helps me as I sort of read through the Old Testament, knowing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, this is written for my benefit so that I can be um, spoken to. Here's the question I ask when I read something like that. God, are you speaking to me? Are my ears able to hear what you're saying? I read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus writes to seven churches through his apostle John. And in, in every church, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear. 
Let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Now, the fact that he, he says that, it sounds to me like you may have ears, but not, the, but not the right kind. You may have physical ears, but not have your spiritual ears open to hear. So here's my prayer. As I, as I read this, I go, oh, God, I hope that I'm hearing. I hope that I'm responsive. And here's my question to you. Are you? Are you open to hear what God wants to say to you? We read on. Verse 5, saying, now, uh, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old forever. Now, notice the next verse, because we have already been reading through the first 24 chapters of Jeremiah. Hopefully by now you could, you could sum up the three general categories of Israel's sin, Judah's sin, and it would be ignorance, immorality, and idolatry. Now here Jeremiah is going to sum them all up with this expression, idolatry. And that's because they are. What is the worst sin you can commit? It is it, 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 it could be this. It could be idolatry, just simply worshipping something other than God. That could be the worst sin. But the worst sin is idolatry when you profess a covenant relationship with God. When you say, and a covenant relationship sounds like this, I am yours and you are mine. I give my life to you. You are my God and I am yours. And then you go and worship something else. That kind of idolatry is what Jeremiah is talking about. And that kind of idolatry doesn't just look like bowing down to statues. It doesn't just look like bowing down in another temple. It could look like you determining the rules, the destiny, the course of your life without reference to God and caring little what God thinks about it. It could be you lighting a candle in a church and appearing on the 7.30 report a few weeks ago and saying, we know the Bible says this, but we think that's out of date now and we think God really wouldn't mind if we just did whatever we wanted. When I heard that, I could not believe. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And wow. So the Bible identifies the worst sin as idolatry. We read this in verse 6. Do not go. So here he is. He's summing up all their sin with this statement. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Wow. So what's the worst sin you can commit? Adultery. When you claim to be in relationship with God. That's the worst. Oh boy. And I've got to tell you, I, I want to make sure that my heart is open to God's correction. My heart is open to, to read God's word. I want my heart soft. I want my heart like wet clay, not hard clay. I want the word of God to shape my life and I want to be open to him, and I want to have the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to hear the Holy Spirit say, "No, no, don't, don't do that. Don't speak like that. Don't, don't talk like that. Don't, don't fill your mind with that." 
I want Christ to be worshipped, not just with my words, but with my life. Verse 7. You have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Notice this. To your own harm. To your own harm. I want to come to that in a moment. Um, but so I'm going to come back to that. So let's make another point here. Verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north. And this is speaking of Babylon, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this. Notice that this is an amazing statement. For Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. You know, that's only said of uh, four people in the Bible. Amazing. One was Moses. The next one is Nebuchadnezzar. The next one we read in Isaiah 45 verse 1. His name is Cyrus, who, who deposed Babylon. And then the next one's Jesus. And, and here's the interesting thing. When, when God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant, Nebuchadnezzar did not know God, did not serve God, did not love God. And God says, he's, he's mine. He's my servant. He's carrying out my will. Isn't that interesting? Really interesting. Can I say that we need to be really, really careful about how we speak of unrighteous leaders? If, 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 you, if you were a member of parliament in the parliament, the Australian parliament last week, and you're a part of this church, I would probably have a quiet word with you about your conduct last week about the way leaders are spoken of. Am I being vague and yet clear enough? Because I think Christians, we need to be very careful about how we speak of unrighteous leaders because you just may be surprised to know God is using them. So let's be very careful here. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, go figure. Who would have guessed? I wouldn't have. Habakkuk certainly didn't. In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Habakkuk. He's prophesying pretty much about this happening as well. And God says, and I'm going to send, he says through Habakkuk, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar to be my instrument. And Habakkuk goes, you're going to what? God, excuse me, Israel, can, we just, can I just see you for a minute? And that's the whole book of Habakkuk. Where Habakkuk stops prophesying this way and he starts going, I, I don't mean to tell you what to do. But if you're looking for a servant, Nebuchadnezzar is just not your man. He's evil and wicked. Haven't you noticed? That's the book of Habakkuk. So this is a really weird reference. So here's a point that, that even though Habakkuk was evil, God will often... I'm going to soften this by saying he will often allow evil to achieve good. And, and this is the point here. Okay. Um, moreover... Uh, we're reading verse 10. Moreover, I will banish from the face, uh, from the voice of mirth, I'll banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now that right there is profound because that is exactly the period of time that Judah was in captivity for 70 years. 
All right, and we read that in Daniel chapter 9, that Daniel was reading this, this passage. And he goes, hang on, the 70 years is just about up. We need to, I need to start praying for this to be fulfilled, which again is just an interesting point. So um, here's something about the Christian that's different to the people that Jeremiah was speaking to. When Christ has captivated your heart, his commands are not a hassle to you. His commands are not a pressure to you. His commands are not hard for you. I hear people saying like, okay, I'm a Christian, but people have just got so many way too high expectations for me. It's just so hard. It's like, what are you talking about? Now, I don't want to make... Yeah, no, I was going to say I don't want to make fun of you, but I just did. Um, because if you delight in Christ, you want to honour him. You want to keep his commands. You want to. We read in 1 John 5, 3, this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, the old King James says irksome. <laughs> Whatever that means, probably burdensome. These commands are not hard. They're not a weary. They're not a drain. You can't say you're under pressure to keep them. No, it's a delight to keep them. It's just a delight to keep them. Now here, Nebuchadnezzar is depicted as the one who's going to come and captivate and that Israel, Judah, will be taken into slavery. And I'm reminded of Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone... As obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here the question is not whether you are a slave, but the question is whose slave are you? And the great delusion of sin's mastery over people is that it tricks people into thinking they are their own master. And it's a lie. We're all slaves. The question is, whose slave are you? Now, this, this statement that God uttered through Jeremiah back up here where it says, um, you, you provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And here's the point there. Sin initially tastes sweet. Sins initially taste sweet, but they are poison to us. It's like you take the most vile poison, coat it in sugar crystals and dip it in honey. Put it on a stick and say, have a suck on that. It's death, although it tastes sweet. And that's what sin does. The Bible says that Moses was enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Anyone who says sin is not pleasurable obviously hasn't sinned. Because sin can be just downright pleasurable. And perhaps for some men here today, you have been lured in by the sugar-coated, honey-dipped allure of pornography. It's a trap. It's going to ruin you. Now, we mentioned right at the start that it said that 
Israel was an example to us. And Paul said these things were written to us as an example. I, I interrupted Paul's flow of thought because the next verse that he utters in that context, having just seen what Jeremiah has said when he sums up all of Israel's sin as being idolatry, Paul picks up on that in First Corinthians 10 verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, does that sound like idolatry to you? But the point there is it's living without reference to God. It's just doing what you do with no reference to God. And Paul calls that idolatry. Wow. And, and, and where does idolatry invariably lead for some? Don't we see it today? And oh God, please guard my heart from this. But it says, Paul says in the next verse, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Well, why would he bring that up? Probably because sexual immorality is so sweet to the taste. It's pleasurable. I mean, it's, it's, it must be nice to have sex without the hassle of getting married because so many people do it. But the Bible calls it immoral. It says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And he says on one day, 23,000 people fell. Wow. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and captivate the people. And God's going to say, no, nah, but his time for being the captivator is going to last 70 years. I decree it and then it will end. And it did. So who's really the captivator? God is. But the people didn't want him to be but he was. So here's my question to us today. Jesus Christ wants to be the captivator of your heart. He wants to be. Jesus is looking for people who will say, I love you. I want you. I'll serve you. I'll live for you. The devil is going to do all he can to stop people from saying that. To stop people from making Jesus Christ the captivator. Of their heart. But I want Jesus to be the captivator of my heart. Do you? Here's a prayer to close with. It's a prayer that leads to making Jesus the captivator of your heart. And if you're at that place today where you know you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you know this is what you want to do, then I encourage you to pray this prayer God, please forgive me of my sins. Come and live in me and help me to live for you. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place. I want him to be Lord and saviour of my life. Teach me what I need to know and help me to share with others what I now know. Amen. Let's continue to pray. Holy Spirit, help us as a church. Not to become arrogant and conceited. Help us as a church to continue to have our light shine. Help us as a church to be captivated by you and to love you with all we are and all we have. I pray. Amen. So to whom or to what are you a slave? Jesus wants to be your captivator. But will you let him? More from Dr. Corbett next week. 
podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, The Captivator, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.